The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Husqvarna, ready when you are. Welcome to Sow, Grow, Repeat, the brand new gardening podcast from The Guardian. I am Alice Fowler. And I'm Jane Perrone, and we're really excited to be doing a podcast about gardening. Every week we'll be focusing on a different theme. We're kicking off with the most popular homegrown crop, the tomato. First believed to be poisonous, they're now cultivated as far north as Iceland and as far south as the Falkland Islands, and they've even been grown in space. However, if you've tried growing your own, then you'll know that they can be quite tricky. But get it right, and there's nothing quite like the fresh from your garden tomato. What's more, you can grow anything you like. There are thousands of varieties to choose from. We'll be hearing about some of the lesser known from tomato expert and heirloom champion Craig Lehoulier, who in the past 30 years has grown more than a thousand different varieties. Chef Stevie Parr will be here to tell us which he prefers to use for different recipes, and writer and tomato enthusiast Naomi Schillinger will tell us her favourites. And we'll be finding out something rather unexpected from Joe Archer, horticulturalist at Kew Gardens. But first, let's hear from some people who have grown their own. I'm John, live in Liverpool. I have an allotment, had the allotment for... 20-something years and been growing tomatoes there in a greenhouse throughout that period of time. I tend to grow small cherry tomatoes and Gardener's Delight seems to be the variety that does the best for me. My name is Kit Greveson. I live in Stroud Green in London N4. I do grow my own tomatoes because they're quite easy to grow, I have to say, and they taste far, far better when you pick them straight from the from the bush. The ones I've usually grown are um, money money maker, yes. I live in the almshouses in Borsbon Road, and we only grow stuff in flower pots. We have tried tomatoes, but unfortunately, people who go by see them and help themselves to them. My name's Helen, and I live in Scotland. I started growing my own tomatoes only last year, actually, but we've got a little greenhouse, and I thought it'd be good fun. A neighbour of ours uh, tipped us off. You can get this big patches of comfrey, which is sort of like almost a weed around where we live, um, but if you harvest all of that and then let it sort of decompose, it's really, like, rich in nitrogen, and that feeds tomatoes really well, so it's sort of also quite a green way of doing things. I chose some varieties that were meant to grow well in Scotland and meant to grow well sort of cooler climate. So uh, we went for this early stupis. They, they were really good. I find they definitely taste better and obviously fresher and you know that they've not been sprayed with stuff. So that's really nice as well. And also it's just the satisfaction of seeing something that you've created really from birth to the final product is amazing. Interesting there that the varieties were mentioned were some of the classics, Gardener's Delight, Moneymaker. Uh, yeah, as we've already said, there's this massive range of tomatoes out there. It's a really funny thing in the tomato world, isn't it? Because if you get into it and you become one of those tomato enthusiasts, you know that there are just thousands and the flavour profiles can go from so sweet to really interesting kind of acid sugar balances and all of that. And yet, what's the number one seller? Gardener's Delight. Now, is that for a good reason? Can you not better Gardener's Delight? Or are people just really limited in their sort of understanding of all the varieties? Because it's so interesting, isn't it? If you go to any allotment, guaranteed 90% of the tomatoes will be Moneymaker, Gardener's Delight, Sunburst maybe. 
It's interesting that the the lady from the far north, or was she from Scotland, was saying that she was growing a very early variety, and I think that's one of the things that can be a great big factor for anybody. Really, is choosing those, finding those early varieties that, particularly in a not so good summer, can cope with British weather. I grow one called uh, Yellow Scotland, which I got from the Heritage Seed Library, which is great because it's been grown in Scotland, bred in Scotland, and it's designed to reach maturity earlier than um, a lot of other tomatoes. And therefore, you do get a really good harvest, even if the weather isn't great. I was going to say the Heritage Seed Library is a fantastic place to go to because you also find that there are lots of regional tomatoes. So I grow one which is called King George, which is a Midland-based tomato with a really thick skin. Now, that means that it's not such an exceptional salad tomato but if it's a bad summer it doesn't really matter if it rains too much or you go through a period of drought that thing will stay you know together and won't split and it's an exceptionally good outdoor tomato for that reason and to me it's a real shame it's not like I have anything against Gardens Delight because it is a lovely tomato but there are so many tomatoes out there that could be so good for people so that they feel like they actually have a lot more success with tomatoes so I think we need to push people being more adventurous in tomato choices and talking about adventurousness my adventure with uh, unusual tomatoes last year was the the much vaunted indigo rose purple tomato which uh, I first saw in a garden on Vancouver Island the year before and just thought I have to grow this it looks like a black billiard ball it just looked incredible I didn't really care about the flavour at that point I just thought it looked so cool so I did grow it last year um, I got some seeds from B&T World Seeds who have a great range of tomatoes and like most other people that I've spoken to who grow that t- tomato, it was a disappointing flavour-wise. Yeah. Um, it was it was one that was bred by Oregon State University to try to uh, increase the amount of anthocyanins in the tomato, which is which is expressed by the purple colour of the flesh, uh, which is uh, reputed to have health benefits. So that was all good. It did have it was purple. It did have lots of anthocyanins in it, but the flavour was a very mediocre, disappointing, but cool looking on your salad plate i think that a lot of i mean name me a really good i think maybe apero there was one called apero a couple of years but mostly i think the modern breeding you don't get wowed by flavor like the ones that i think that you just eat them and you think that is tomato nirvana or always older heritage varieties i think modern breeding is always trying to be a bit too clever like oh Mm. we'll have a purple tomato or we'll have X, Y, and Z. Saying that, Oregon State University has an extraordinary tomato breeding program, and some of the best kind of late and early blight resistance comes through their breeding program because they have, you know, very. I mean, they have hotter summers than us, but they have that thing of having a very damp, wet climate, which, as we know, is kind of the antithesis of what mm. the tomato really wants. So I, I think it's always good to try new stuff, but for me, my heart is always going to be with a heritage tomatoes yeah i think there's uh, i mean i'm a bit of a sort of uh, always grow too many tomatoes by far and like to experiment but i do have a few that i really just come back and back to and i have to say sun gold as a mm. as a small cherry is really 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 good it's kind of um it's a equivalent to gardener's delight i would say better than gardener's delight and just is really reliable and great the, i mean the other thing i tried last year which I don't know what your views are on this, Alice, was the, the tom-tato, the, <laughs> the grafted... Uh, well, if you haven't come across this, it, if you imagine uh, below ground, it's a potato. Above ground, it's a tomato plant. So you're getting a double whammy. It's not some kind of strange GM product. It's a grafted uh, 
product. So it's basically tomato sem grafted onto uh, potato rootstock. So the idea is you get a harvest of both potatoes and tomatoes. I did get lots of lovely little cherry tomatoes, which were delicious. I did very little watering of said plants. And so the potato harvest was meagre. But it was kind of fun. My children were entertained by the idea. Uh, It's a novelty, but probably not something to try if you're growing a lot of a lot of tomatoes and you have a lot of space. Better, perhaps, for people on balconies who want to sort of get as much as they can out of their little space. Yeah, so it's possible to do this because the tomato and the potato are incredibly closely related, right? And so that you can kind of graft one onto the other and it doesn't sort of... It probably knows that its roots are something different, but it can... can it can senses it. a change. <laughs> Something's <laughs> happened to me. It's a really, really old trick. It was kind of... Mm. Last year, it was sort of sold as this brand new thing, but actually it was a bit of a Victorian parlour trick. So you would bring out this plant to your table with your guests and you'd say, do you want a tomato? And then you'd you'd knock out the bottom and show that you had potatoes and then get your your chef to run off and cook them up quickly so that people could eat both the tomato and the potato together. And clearly... You know, there's a reason why potatoes only produce potatoes and tomatoes, you know, have such big tomatoes as their kind of seed crop. You're exhausting the plant if you ask it to do too many things at once. But, like, in terms of just understanding a bit more about plants plant physiology and stuff like that it's a great trick that's one of the things I love about tomatoes is the fact that they kind of are ultimately so flexible. So Mm. you can train them in lots of different ways people get confused about the whole cordon versus bush debate is this is this a tomato the way you need to just allow it to to bush up and you don't need to pinch anything out or should i be pinching outside shoots but actually ultimately you can still get a crop whatever you do more or less with a good tomato it's just one of those things where people have very sort of set ideas about how they want to grow them i mean how what, what's your technique alice well i've been through particularly so the bush tomato is a determinate tomato so it grows to a certain size and that's why you don't pinch it out whereas the cordon tomato is an indeterminate so in theory if the conditions were perfect it would grow forever and ever and ever right that's the whole point about the indeterminate bit and in the axis of the kind of right angle between the leaf and the stem it produces a shoot that you pinch out now there's been lots of studies to see whether pruning really makes a big effect or not and if you're in a really bright sunny ideal tomato growing kind of mediterranean mexican climate if you don't prune you get exactly the same volume of tomatoes but pruning for us makes a big difference because we have such kind of considerably lower light levels than what the tomato wants and also we have this incredibly damp humid climate that is really not a very ideal growing conditions for the tomato and we have this issue of blight so the more leaves you have clearly the more kind of um, the microclimate around the tomato is going to trap a lot more humidity and that can promote blight so the idea about pruning out is that you concentrate the energy into producing some tomatoes so that you get quick growth you get kind of sustained growth and then you're also going to get better air circulation and better light levels to those tomatoes so that they ripen quickly however i still stand by this idea that pruning your cordon tomato you're making a lot of wounds so in a year where blight is particularly bad you've got an open wound across the tomato and how does and you know what does the blight really want it wants to get into the plant really quickly so I have every year I kind of go through this thing like I'm going to prune, I'm not going to prune. I'm never very uh, particular in my kind of scientific uh, (laughs) application of my experiment. So I sort of half prune things and half don't. But um, 
if blight is coming, I think stop pruning. That's my, my conclusion on the whole thing. Oh, okay. I shall bear that in mind for this summer. Now, have you ever wondered why tomatoes have hairy stems? I have. I always thought it was something to do with retaining heat, a bit like when you get goosebumps and your hair stands on end to trap heat. But it turns out I was completely wrong. The truth, scientists at Kew Gardens have discovered, is much more intriguing. And we're joined on the line by Joe Archer, a horticulturist who manages the kitchen garden at Kew, who can tell us more. Joe, what do the hairs actually do? Well, that's interesting. So, as you say, uh, scientists back in about 2009 here at Kew, they discovered that far more plants than we're aware of have sort of this carnivorous habit and tomatoes came under that bracket. Um, as you say, it's the, the small hairs on the leaves, insects can get trapped on those hairs, and then when they get trapped, they fall off to the ground, and then it's the decomposition of those bugs and pests uh, that the, the plant can benefit from. So we're not talking about sort of Venus flytrap-style drama here. We're talking about a much more sort of prosaic form of, of uh, carnivorousness, if that is indeed a word. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not it's not like, uh, you know, the sundews or the Venus firechaps, which will almost rely on that sort of intake of nutrients. Uh, with the tomatoes, it is an opportunist um, uh, adaptation in which, you know, they can benefit from the extra nutrients. And for the gardeners, it helps us out because it can trap those little pests. So do the hairs do anything else? Do they form, uh, have they got any other function or is that it? Is that the only... Well, probably, uh, probably, um, you know, like other other plants that have this sort of downy layer on the leaves, they can they can reflect sunlight. It can hold moisture, and whether the plant's aware that it's doing these things, uh, I'm not too sure. But uh, you know, it's the, the the little positives that it can gain from from, from trapping uh, insects or the like. I suppose there's very few adaptations on a plant which aren't actually. I mean, everything has a role at the end of the day, right? Or else it wouldn't have kind of yeah. bothered with it. But um, that's really interesting. So, I mean, because it's, it's, it's that kind of within the wider group, is that suggesting then that hairiness is predominantly there to keep sap-sucking pests away? Well, possibly. I guess we'll never truly know. Um, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, the gardener probably wouldn't see uh, a huge benefit from, from this adaptation uh, but, you know, I think there's about 13 species of wild tomato. And in the wild, you know, to survive, they would need to have uh, this, this extra ability and to uh, make the most of every single niche in order to, to, to survive. Yeah, and I suppose in the wild, the tomatoes, it's not like there's going to be a gardener that comes and sort of ties them up and puts stakes <laughs> in, right? I mean, my understanding of wild tomatoes is that they're sort of scramblers across across the ground and then they'll climb up something if it's there. But they're yeah, sort that's of, right. Yeah, they're much more sprawling things than upright. Yeah, I mean, we, we grew uh, a wild tomato, um, or one close to last year, called Golden Current. And I never seen anything like it. It was like a hedge of a tomato bush. Um, so they have a, you know, they're very vigorous. It resisted the blight much longer than all the other ones. So the wild ones, they really are, they're streaks ahead in terms of, of vigour. Um, a bit different to our cordons. Yeah, they're, they're funny, wild-looking plants, aren't they? They're kind of... They grow and grow and grow and grow. They've got a huge amount of vigour in them. And what, Joe, yeah. what's your favourite uh, tomato that you grow at Kew? Is there well, a particular... I'm, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I do like uh, Gardener's Delight. <laughs> it's like a sweet shop uh, walking through. Um, that's probably my favourite cherry one. And I think it's a plant that most people tend to grow. They start out gardening. It was one of the first things I grew. Um, so I'm a bit of a, bit of a, um, a stickler for that one. 
I also like some of the some of the bigger ones, uh, like Black Russian. That is one of the best tomatoes I've ever tasted. So um, yeah, I love yeah. Black Russian. Thank you very much, Joe. Still to come, we'll be joined by writer and gardener Naomi Schillinger and chef Stevie Powell. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Want a perfectly mowed lawn? The Husqvarna Ride-On Lawn Mower Range features a unique articulated steering system and front-mounted cutting deck, giving you unrivaled maneuverability in tight spaces, around trees, under benches, and against fences, allowing easy navigation of the most complex lawns. Husqvarna, ready when you are. We're now joined by Naomi Schillinger and Chef Stevie Paul. Naomi's the author of Grow All You Can Eat in Three Square Feet. She also started a community growing project in North London, which resulted in over 100 neighbouring households pimping pavements and growing vegetables and flowers in front gardens and window boxes. She's a huge tomato enthusiast and can tell us which varieties work best if you are very short on space. Stevie has been cooking professionally since he was 16 and he trained at River Cafe, Morrow and Petersham Nurseries and now has three of his own restaurants in London, Rotorino, Dock Kitchen and the newly opened Craft London. Welcome to both of you. I guess the first thing I want to know from Naomi is what we discussed earlier. Um, we were talking about Gardener's Delight and Moneymaker, the old favourites, and wondering whether you uh, have, have grow any of those or whether you have another favourite. Um, I think my favourite is Sun Gold, which is a little orange cherry tomato, orange cherry tomato, and it's sweet. But I was chatting to other growers the other day, and they said it was too sweet. Which, in my book, you can't have a tomato that is too sweet. But just goes to show that it really—I could say this is the best one to grow, but it just might not be your taste. So, you know, I would say Sun Gold. You know, if you've got a small space, you know, in in our northerly clime, it will it will ripen well, and it just tastes delicious. Stevie, is there such a thing as a too sweet tomato? I guess it kind of depends what you want to use it for. I think those really tiny, very, very sweet tomatoes that you can just sort of eat like they're grapes are great for that. But maybe if you want to cook with it, sometimes when you decide to add tomato to a dish, what you want to do is introduce acidity. So if you've got a super sweet tomato, it doesn't really work. Do you have a tomato, like, what's quite interesting is that the homegrown market has, you know, thousands of wonderful heritage tomatoes, but then the actual, the chef market is a really different world, isn't it? Because it's about commercially produced stuff. So what tomatoes do you rely on? Do you even know the varieties of the tomatoes you rely on? Yeah, I do. I guess it kind of depends on what sort of cook you're on, how interested in produce you are. At the moment, and in fact through the winter, I've been buying these amazing green tomatoes from Italy which are called Marinda and Cremona I think is the other variety grown in Sicily and in Sardinia and they're they're just not they're not indoor grown they're an outdoor grown winter tomato and they are crunchy and acidic and extremely delicious and then in the summer we start looking more you know you want to I like to cook a tomato sauce with a San Marzano if you're Having a salad, it's nice really to have loads of different varieties of tomatoes so you have more interest as you're eating it. Um, I love those big, rich tomatoes which seem to go over through millions of different names but always taste pretty good. They are quite a challenge in our climate because the bigger the tomato, the more like 
the harder work it's going to be to get it really the harder it? work and you don't get many per plant so uh, it depends if you've got lots of space grow them but if you've only got a little amount of space they're kind of a bit of a prima donna of a tomato but um i think black crim is one of the, probably the best to grow because it comes from the crimea which is similar climate to us and so i've grown it before and i was amazed that it did ripen it was really really juicy and meaty and tasty and i just wasn't expecting that we're not bringing them in from italy or the south of france where we just can't match their heat and you know and even in a greenhouse actually i'm going to try them in a greenhouse this year some of the i tasted a lovely one called ananas noir when i was in the loire and it was blooming gorgeous and, and i think they had hundreds of varieties growing and the cook said god i love this one it's my favorite but i i, I know i couldn't match the conditions but i'm going to try i've got a greenhouse this year i'm going to try it and see what i can do yeah that's the problem like what you have to remember about this motto is that it hails from mexico so it is a you know it likes hot dry long summers mm. with incredibly high light levels and we are uh, you know in a world which is completely the opposite we have pretty bad light levels even on a good summer and we are wet and damp and cool which kind of brings me back to you stevie so cause what happens to so many new to growing kind of gardeners and whatnot who try their tomatoes and then they get blight and so once the plant has blight that's it the whole plant is going to go down right the tomatoes as well so you end up with a ton of green tomatoes now there's only so much green tomato chutney that anyone can eat how do you feel about the green tomato I'm, in, I'm into green tomatoes, and actually I think if you are growing tomatoes in the country, you do have to become a master of cooking with shriveled, little, hard <laughs> green. <laughs> because that's, that's of what you so often get. And actually when you, when you think about cooking with quite underripe stuff, it seems that looking to Asia is a good idea because I think there's quite a tradition of it. So when you see tomatoes for sale in the markets in India or Sri Lanka, they are the green ones. And whether that's because they pick them before the other creatures want them or because they like them more acidic I'm not sure but often green so recipes like that sort of very thin tomato curry called rasam that's definitely a sort of green tomato thing a toran which is a dry stir fry from the south of India with curry leaves and mustard seeds and grated coconut that's a brilliant green tomato recipe. Oh my god, I want blight now. I <laughs> know. Yeah, I'm just thinking that sounds awesome. That sounds lovely. I mean, I'm I, exo- I never thought I'd be excited about green tomatoes, but you've turned me in two two minutes. I am. A, I am a fan of the fried green tomato. Yeah, like yeah, you classic. know, yeah. dusted in some corn flour, lots of salt and pepper. That is a kind of hangover cure par excellence, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I remember I once wrote a recipe for something or other about green tomatoes, and I got comments saying that they were potentially poisonous. Is that does anyone know anything about that? Is that true? God, I don't think so. I mean, I think the thing is, what could happen, the only thing I can understand, I can think of there, is that if you left your potato, so the potato flour and the tomato flour are very similar looking, and then what happens if you leave your potatoes to flour is that they then go and produce a green tomato-looking fruit, which is highly poisonous. So I wonder if sort of somehow people got Mm. that in their head I mean people yeah. are it's really interesting around tomato and in the tomato's early history was actually really complicated because of this fact people were absolutely obsessed that it was going to be poisonous because so much of the potato if you go and eat the leaves or anything like that then it's in, it considered incredibly you know dangerous and poisonous and you shouldn't go around eating potato leaves but quite a lot of chefs now start to use tomato leaves in the cooking don't they because a few tomato leaves in a tomato sauce can really up the tomato flavour so how do you make a proper tomato sauce? Oh, we could go on about this for a long time. <laughs> it's one of those things you never ask an Italian person how to okay. make a tomato sauce. But I'm not an Italian person, so I can tell you how I do it, which is 
with a good red ripe soft cooking tomato you know so i think a san marzano is a proper tomato that's that's been bred for cooking and that's important um peel, peel it i think generally unless you've got an incredibly soft skin tomato then i would take the time to peel it squeeze it a bit but i don't mind leaving a bit of the season take some of the water out and then really thinly and evenly slice garlic fry it in olive oil and you know when you're t- cooking something like this with only three or four ingredients this it, it, the details are important so you fry the garlic in the olive oil until it begins to golden and start to brown a little bit and you get more sweetness and you get a little nuttiness and then you put in your squeezed and um, peeled raw tomatoes turn the heat right down and cook it for depending on how big the batch is but we're talking maybe an hour or two mm. and as it as it reduces you get you know everything concentrates when stuff reduced so you get more acidity you get more sweetness you get you know tomatoes have umami which is that savory taste that chefs are always banging on about and as you reduce it that intensifies and gets better now i want lunch <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Mary, do you have kind of recommendations? So I'm assuming that you mostly grow in pots, is that fair? Um, no, because I, I grow in my front garden, which is soil. And I have grown in pots and in grow bags, but I find, because I'm so chaotic generally, that I find if they're in the soil, because my watering regime can be a bit all over the place, they fare better. But, I mean, you can easily grow tomato in pots, but you just have to try and water every day regularly, especially when it's hot. And if you don't, then that's when all the, you get your pests and diseases mm-hmm. creeping in because it's not at its healthiest. So the soil sort of looks after mm-hmm. your plants better, really. And do you feed in the soil or not? Or are you? I tend again. I'm really oh. lazy. Unless I, my plant is looking like it needs feeding, I don't. I don't feed it. I mean, I do sort of add manure or, or compost to my soil every year. I, I mulch it, but I don't. I don't think. I mean, it's, there's so many different ways. You know, about putting nitrates in soil isn't meant to be a good thing now. So I try not to put liquid feeds into soil if I can help it. I mean, I think that's the joy of good soil is that mm. it does all the hard work for you. Yeah. So you, you know, and the roots will really get down and they'll find the water source and all of that. And when you're in a pot, you have to remember that you now have to take on all the kind of the weight of being the soil, essentially, yeah. and and kind of following up with nutrients and whatnot. So I'm really interested. What varieties do you grow in your front garden? Well, uh, so I've grown a gold crown, which is a lovely little yellow tomato. Uh, it's from Sea Spring Seeds. Oh, OK. Um, they're really, really nice. I mean, they're market growers in themselves. So they they, they know they've t- trialed all their tomatoes. That's a lovely little yellow cherry. Uh, sun gold, black crim. I'm going to try ananas noir. I mean, Gardener's Delight. I know it's everyone knows it, but it is reliable. Mm-hmm. So if you if you were, wanted a foolproof, easy one, I'd go for that. Um, I did taste Egyptian, but that I need an indoor... I need right. uh, for that, and it's a kind of a, a plum. And I tasted that down at a Victoriana Nursery. And that's another thing I'd say. If, if you know, you can... If you've got one that you like, always grow that, but then try some other ones out or go to a nursery or a garden that's holding tasting sessions at the end of the summer and then you can really get to taste a whole lot more than you normally would be able to. The plum tomato is really interesting because... um, So the plum tomato was developed entirely so that it would can well so it would jar so they literally said oh tomatoes so they'd learn how to in american terms can or bottle tomatoes so you know you put the tomatoes in and then you put them in boiling water and that was kind of pre tin can tomatoes but then they decided that they needed tomatoes which actually would pack better into them so the san marzano and whatnot are literally that shape because you can fit more tomatoes in now before anybody did um canning or bottling or tin tomatoes they had 
paste and storage tomatoes. Now, these are really, really ancient tomatoes that would you would find from Spain had their own versions. Italy had their own versions. Um, France definitely had some. And the Real Seed Catalogue is one of the few places that do it. And the storage tomatoes are extraordinary. So they ripen very late in the, um, in the season. And then I was eating tomatoes until the end of February. So you store them like you do apples. And you can only cook. They're not. They're not any good for salad because you know you, what you've got to imagine is that they've got a really thick skin in order to make it through. But this was traditionally how you got yourself through the winter with tomatoes. You must have been so smug at the end of February, going, <laughs> oh, "I'm just going to get one of my fresh, homegrown tomatoes out." <laughs> you had a great feeling, you know, to think, "Wow, it's February and I'm eating my own tomato." <laughs> I got this really good quote. It's from a song by um, Guy Clark, and he says that the only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. So, and it's true. It's such such a special taste isn't it you know you, you can't get from a supermarket or even the greengrocer you know literally just the second you've picked it yeah. popping it in your mouth yeah although I hate to bring in a note of negativity here but there are occasions when I pick my a homegrown tomato and think I can't believe it I put all this work in and actually the ones that I got from the supermarket tasted better than mine and that's that's a pretty devastating moment and and it's not always to do with um variety you know it's often it's a good variety it's just maybe that i'm impatient and i've not let them ripen properly the other thing is that i wonder is whether i can do anything more to increase that sunlight so like i'm thinking some kind of space age like foil blankets on the ground. Alice, is this a good idea? I have nuts? heard for aubergine growers that actually putting foil, like, you know, that kind of um, heat reflective material foil, you know, the, so like the for radiators insula- or yeah, something. insulation, yeah, exactly yeah. that. If you put it underneath the um, aubergines, you bounce it back and get that much more light and uh, light levels are really key to getting good aubergine production. So uh, I don't think that that's, Bonkers. I mean, now the interesting thing is if you uh, go down to sort of Sicily or somewhere or anywhere with really high light levels and really baking hot summers, they actually have to spend a lot of time trying to protect the tomato from too much light. So there is such a thing as too much light, but I don't think it ever happens in our world. Well, I've been doing it on a very small scale with an experiment with a couple of tomato seedlings on an old um, sort of foil kind of windscreen shield that you put in your car Mm -hmm. to stop it getting hot. And they do seem to be growing better than the ones not in those circumstances so yeah, they're even more maybe. protected as well yeah. maybe you know maybe so, yeah. slightly more protected yeah. and also the lights bouncing around yeah and well. also yeah. if you're growing on a windowsill and you're raising your tomato seedlings on a windowsill then you can make a kind of l shape you basically get a cereal box and you Blue know Ray blue peter yes yeah yeah <laughs> cut off one side so you have a kind of l-shaped bit and then line it with tinfoil and put that the other side of your seedlings and you get just that bit more light so that they constantly aren't straining towards the light and therefore right. you get slightly stronger seedlings and that can make a big difference on any seedling whether it's a tomato or not so, so it could work in the garden then couldn't yeah. it before but it depends how space age you want your garden to look I, I think one of the really key things about tomatoes is that when you are planting them out that you bury them really deep so you yes. pinch off those lower set of leaves maybe even up two sets mm. and you bury it down because the more roots you have the more nutrients the tomato is going to pick up and that's the thing about in pots as well yeah. to always use a big pot to yeah. give the tomato the best best environment to grow in because if you grow 
tomatoes in tiddly little pots you're never going to get a healthy plant no especially if you're not great at watering you get like that. kind of awesome flavor sometimes though oh, okay. you really really stress that tomato out you can get tiny but really crazy flavored tomatoes the other trick i think is really good is if you are growing a cordon so that's an indeterminate type of tomato when you're taking the side shoots off you can root those really really quickly so if you have only if somebody say gives you a tomato and you start thinking this is a really awesome tomato it's growing really well even if it's started to produce fruit you think this tastes fantastic you can take mm. those side shoots and literally the minute you take them off you put them straight away into the ground or into a pot they will root within two weeks and because they have become off a mature plant they fruit really early it's so amazing, it's an extraordinarily it? quick way halfway through the season to decide oh i want eight billion more tomato plants yeah i just wanted to say there's a couple more um, varieties i'm experimenting with when we're talking about green tomatoes there's one called green envy Again, from and I haven't haven't tried it yet, but that acidy kind of tart taste, I'm really looking forward to trying those. That acid sweetness balance in a tomato is a really interesting thing, and what it's kind of what's been happening across all fruit, really, um, apples, is that we the bricks index which is how you rate the sweetness of something is you know rocketing up so what's happening is that lots of our fruit are becoming incredibly sweet so you know you think about the apples we ate as kids to the apples that you now eat today you know like they're very very you know those big commercial pink lady and stuff like that they're incredibly sweet flavored and the bricks index is is getting higher and higher and higher now they think that there's real issues with this because you have to have sour flavors introduced in your life really quite young in order for you to adopt them as an adult so there's been some really interesting um research to show that like bitter flavors like chicories and maybe more sour tomatoes and stuff like that you don't like them as a kid because your palate isn't ready for them but because all your kind of community eats them they are a sign of kind of adulthood i suppose it's like your first glass of wine like no teenager likes their first glass of wine right it's like a really grim flavor but because it's a kind of rite of passage you learn to like it and then as you get older your palate actually develops for that and the sour flavors are the same thing so they have to be introduced young and you have to see people enjoying them in order for you to kind of want to like them and so there's kind of real worry and when you hear all the about these new tomato breeding and they're all super super sweet the sweetest thing you'll ever taste it's like no we need you know we need to embrace sour as a flavor i feel and i think acidity is incredibly important in cooking it's one of the things that i taste for when i'm tasting and thinking about salt i'm often also thinking about acidity because what I want for my food is a brightness and a freshness and a sort of zinginess, and that is about acidity. And whether you've got that through adding some really zingy tomatoes or a squeeze of lemon or a bit of wine or a bit of vinegar or whatever it is, it's, um, it's really important to make food that sort of is bright and fresh. Naomi and Stevie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lastly, we're joined down the line from the States by Craig LaHulia. Craig is a champion of heirloom varieties. He turned his 30 years worth of tomato gardening experience into a new book, Epic Tomatoes. So, Craig, how did you get into tomatoes in the first place? The love of tomatoes actually came from an early desire to replicate the flavor of the tomatoes that my grandfather grew. Uh, what then happened is I discovered the Seed Savers Exchange in the mid-1980s, and being one of those uh, maybe peculiar people that likes to try everything, um, I decided why try five varieties or ten varieties, um, and I like the different flavors and colors and history. So that's why, as I sit here, I've tried about 2,000 types 
in my 30 years of gardening, and I have seeds for about 5,000 more. Um, but I actually do love the flavor of tomato. So it, it's not just an academic exercise. It is a, it is a passion, a culinary passion, as well as uh, historical. Well, when the zombie apocalypse comes, we know where to run to for tomato seeds. That's an extraordinary collection. So in order to keep that collection kind of going, do you have to sort of grow the seeds out every once in a while to keep the seeds fresh and stuff like that? Because tomato seeds don't actually store for that long, do they? I've found through the years that uh, germination with tomatoes maintains a very high level for up to 10 to 12 years, as long as they're kept dry. And I just keep them in coin envelopes or a little little snap cap uh, bottles in my office. And so that gives you a really good window. Uh, Of course, there's no way I could get to grow out everything in my collection. So what I make sure I do is if something's getting on the edge of time or or I've grown it and it's not a flavor favorite, I make sure the Seed Savers Exchange or a friend or another seed preservation organization has that variety so that it doesn't uh, go extinct. So yeah, it it is a bit of a challenge of organization and keeping track of things but you know I was I was a chemist in my previous life and like a lot of data and figures and charts and make a lot of notes and notebooks and things so it all, it all kind of fits with my personality I think. Now um, one of the things I'd really love to talk to you about is, a, is about the different types of tomatoes because I mean I think people think oh a tomato is just round and red or small or big. And actually, there's quite a lot of different uh, shapes and categories to tomatoes. And I was wondering if you could kind of explain a little about the uh, the different types and and why people might want to grow them. Sure. Well, and and it really comes down to what type of gardening gardening someone would like to do. And if they're really going for maximum production and they're, they're sharing with neighbors or putting up for the winter, they may want to look at some of the super productive newer hybrid varieties that are, are known to, to tolerate a wider variety of conditions and to be bred with different disease resistances. But you're, you're typically limited to colors and uh, shapes in that case. Once you go through the gate into the world of heirlooms, then, then you've got your yellows and whites and greens and stripes. And uh, it really does appeal to those who, who love to cook and be creative with their food. If anyone uh, listening is familiar with trying different dark chocolates or wines or coffees, what you'll find when you've tried lots of different tomatoes, if you're inclined to be the type of person that really enjoys nuances of of flavors of things, that each tomato variety, not necessarily color, but the tiny ones, the big ones, the heart shapes, the pastes, the reds, the yellows, whites, there's really no correlation with any of those aspects and flavors. It's just whatever the genes are for that specific variety will dictate whether it's sweet or sour, tart, sharp, acidic, balanced. So you're talking about two different things here. We're talking about amazing flavors and we're talking about yes. colors and shapes. I am I'm afraid I often find myself very lured in by unusual uh, colors and shapes of tomato and yes. forget a little bit about the flavor. Are there any are there any that tomatoes that I should be growing that are both unusual in color or shape and offer tip-top flavor. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So there's a variety called Green Giant. It grows to a pound. I I know people in the UK can grow it, and uh, they've grown them under glass. They're about a 70 or 80-day ripening tomato here in the States, but they have... uh, So I told you previously I've grown a few thousand varieties of tomatoes, and this one, Green Giant, is in the top 10. And 
another in the top 10 is one I developed that is bright yellow, weighs about 12 ounces to a pound, and it has red swirls in and out, and it has the flavor of brandy wine. And many people know a brandy wine as being one of the most delicious of all tomatoes. So Ooh, I'm liking the sound delicious. of that. Now, I have a question for you. This is a very random question. So when I first started training in gardening, I worked at the Royal Horticultural Society and we did a tomato trial test. And I think I grew about uh-huh. 200 different varieties. And that was like my my first summer of learning to be a professional gardener was looking after tomatoes every day. So my hands were stained black, you know, as you can imagine, pulling out all those cordons. And there was a variety in there that was called Tarts Tits. Have you ever heard from it? It was the most amazing tomato. It was ginormous and it was heart-shaped and you literally needed two tomatoes. It was the biggest thing I've ever seen and you had tomato soup. You had to do basically nothing to it. And uh, I swear to God it was called Tarts Tits, but I've never found it. So I wondered if you knew about it. I have heard about it and it is one of a class of... So the, the large heart shape, the huge shape is actually a a highly recessive genetic trait that only shows up in a fraction of the percent of tomatoes. But it first showed up in the mid-1920s um, in a seed catalog. They actually called it oxheart, but it's taken on. They come in yellow. Uh, there, are, there are gardening enthusiasts now that have bred them in different colors. So you can actually get purple and chocolate and green and white. And what is distinctive about that type of tomato, as you notice, is that they have hardly any seeds, and they're extremely meaty. And, yeah. Uh, A lot of people will ask me in my talks, what do you suggest to use for sauce? And most people go to the Roma types, you know, the elongated small plum tomatoes, which to me don't have a whole lot of flavor. But I think these big, enormous, ginormous heart shapes are fantastic for sauce. How they came to be is one showed up in somebody's garden of a customer receipt company and they sent it in in 1925 and it became, they grew it out, named it Livingston's Oxheart and it's uh, that was the very first one. So that's what I'm looking. Time, that's what I'm looking for. Basically, I knew it as a nickname, right? Is that what you're saying? Tots tits, not their, not their <laughs> professional name. <laughs> well, it, there's lots of tomatoes that have very uh, odd names. If you look through the seed saver catalog, where they've got about uh, ten thousand different names, it's quite remarkable. And I don't think there's ten thousand different tomatoes. I I just think different colors and types have arisen through mutations and crosses all around the world. So kind of the same tomato genetically, but you've got two different names for it. And and so the world of heirlooms has become quite confusing because there's so many synonyms. Still, it's fun to have the name and, you know, to think of the family working on their farm in Kansas in the 1800s, finding this tomato and getting all excited about it. And because it's been handed down through the years, we get to grow some of these now. Uh, There has never really been a better time to garden than now because of the incredible array of choices that we have makes it kind of challenging doesn't it to say what you want to grow we can't let you go we can't let you go without knowing what your favorite tomato is sure well i would have to say cherokee purple mostly because i i i had the distinct fortune of being sent that tomato when it was unnamed back in 1990 by a fellow named uh, john green who lived in tennessee with a simple letter, and I've actually reproduced the letter in the back of the book, but John told me that the Cherokee Indians gave his neighbors this purple tomato 100 years ago, and this was in 1990. So this is a tomato that dates back to the 1890s. And he said, I just hope you like it. So I grew it, and I loved it. It was the very first of the black tomatoes. I sent it to a friend at a seed company, Jeff McCormick of Southern Exposure, and he said, it looks like a bad leg bruise, but it tastes pretty good. Maybe people will like it. And 
the fact that I can walk around farmers markets now and see Cherokee purple is a bit of um, a disorienting feeling. And my wife pokes me in the ribs and she says, if John didn't send you the seed, if you didn't grow it and name it, if you didn't send it to Jeff, if Jeff didn't put it in his catalog, but that's that's kind of my tomato that's out there everywhere. And I just feel like the luckiest person in the world to have been able to name and popularize a tomato that lots of people like. And it is still one of my very favorites. It's a <laughs> lovely story. And I think the, the, the sort of answer to that is if you want to have a happy long life, you need to grow tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes me happy, I'll tell you that. Good. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Craig. Well, I don't know about you, Jane, but now I'm so excited about this summer and the thought of ripe tomatoes. But this is just the beginning of our podcasting life, isn't it? Because we have uh, many more episodes coming up. And next one is going to be about allotments. So if anybody wants to get in touch, they can tweet us. Yes, our Twitter uh, handle is at Guardian Gardens. Uh, or if you want to email us, you can email askalice at theguardian.com. Remember that Alice is spelt with a Y. And we look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> <laughs>